Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, regular columns, explainers and trackers, as well as a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway in China as the Red New Deal is rolled out. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's become quite commonplace for American commentators to describe this contest between the United States and China as one rooted in ideology. Too often, though, that claim is left unexamined. Even if we accept as broadly true the idea that there's an ideological dimension to this, we're not sure what exactly the competing ideologies are supposed to be. Leaving aside the American ideology for the time being and just focusing on China's, most people I've asked at least can't quite describe what the positive content of Chinese ideology actually is. We're mostly unclear how widespread certain political beliefs or even belief systems are in China. We're not sure how committed to those beliefs the people who espouse them in fact are. We're mostly unclear how our own familiar typologies of ideology, left or liberal or progressive, right or conservative or reactionary, how these map onto China if indeed they do at all. And there are all sorts of definitional issues. Is authoritarianism really an ideology? And what about generic nationalism? Is that an ideology on its own? And what about more basic impulses, you know, attitudes, emotions that have you know clear political elements to them, but are largely inchoate? Since this podcast has been focused, at least at the outset of what promises to be a very politically important year, on thinking about how we think about China, it strikes me that how we approach understanding ideology, not just China's ideological landscape, but even the very idea of ideology, is tremendously important. So I've asked someone here to help me puzzle this out. I am delighted to be joined by Jason Wu, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University in Bloomington, and one of a group of brilliant young scholars who are doing fascinating work about ideology in China. Jason, welcome to Seneca, and thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you for the invitation, Kaiser. It's it's an honor. Well, I'm very pleased that you could make it. I, I was just thinking about how uh, the ECSD program that yeah, Susan Shirk and Barry Naughton built, where you did your PhD, by the way. It's just been badly overrepresented on this podcast. I think either just by chance or maybe, as I suspect, this is more likely uh, because it's just a phenomenal program that's just produced an absurd number of talented academics and managed to place all. I mean, that's what I was thinking about. How how many of you got jobs? It's great. Yeah, we're we've been very lucky in many respects, but also I think it's just a credit to the scholars at at UCSD. Yeah. Uh, Victor Schur, I think he's the only person I haven't had on. The, I, I think I had him on a long time ago, but it's been a while. So I got to reach out to him and get him back on. Anyway, uh, I am one step closer to, to, to collecting the complete set now. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So before we jump in, in case anyone wants to hit pause and take a look at the two papers that we're going to be discussing today, uh, what's the easiest way to find your work, Jason? Is it is it at your personal website? Yeah. Um, so uh, they're posted on my website under the research section. 
Um, okay. So it's the nature of ideology in urban China and categorical confusion, which is about ideological labels in China. Yeah. You want to spell out the URL for that? It's Jason. Well, yeah. You, you spell it out. Jason, J-A-S-O-N-Y-U-Y-A-N-W-U.com. Okay. So, so Jason, that was an easy first one. So now I'm going to hit you with one that might be a little tougher to spell out. What do modern American political scientists mean when they say the word ideology? That's a great question. And it's a confusing question because political scientists mean something different from like sociologists. And even different political scientists might have different things in mind. But the tradition that I'm working in is related to this public opinion research. And what they're doing is they're looking at how people think about politics and how they answer questions about specific issues. And so there's this way that we describe it, which is the sense of whether someone has a uh, understanding of what goes with what, like the degree of constraint in their political thinking. Mm-hmm. So um, mathematically, it, you can look at it as like a set of correlations between um, your preferences about different issues. But you can also just think about it as like, if you know something about someone's ideology on one issue, can you predict what they're going to think about something else? If they, if you can predict pretty well, then you can say that person's pretty ideological or they're pretty constrained. If you don't know anything about what someone thinks about another issue based on what they think about the first issue, then you would say they're not constrained. So it needs to possess then constraint to some degree in order to qualify as an ideology. So like in this in this broadly Western sense of it, ideology actually has to have some coherence to it then. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that's that's a good way to think about it. You know, there are other people who think about it, and they would describe it as like a a lot of different ways, right? Like a system of thought, you know, some kind of set of principles that shape how you think about the world or how you conceive of issues, and those are obviously just as valid. But when we're doing the sort of public opinion research, we tend to go with this constraint idea. So, I mean, even if we can't say exactly what it is, maybe it's one of those things that falls in the category of you know it when you see it. So, I mean, I can say with a great deal of confidence that, you know, AOC has an ideology and that Marjorie Taylor Greene has an ideology and that Liu Shaoqi or Liu Xiaobo had ideologies as separate as they were. American right-wing populism, that's an ideology. And so was, you know, Chinese Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought as was the liberalism espoused by Liu Xiaobo. Uh, what about other things that I mentioned, things like you know authoritarianism or nationalism or traditionalism or cosmopolitanism? Are, are these by themselves sufficient to count as freestanding ideologies to you? So I, I think you could certainly think so, although I would say cosmopolitanism and nationalism are more sort of coherent. It's funny you bring up authoritarianism there's this controversial past in terms of how people think about it. Like after the Second World War, there was this idea about like, is there such a thing as authoritarianism in personality or something? And it was measured with things like how people think about their children and you know what what sorts of parenting techniques they would endorse. Like corporal punishment or not, right? Yeah, order versus creativity or something like that. But there's also within political science, we think about how to define autocracy. And the tradition is to consider it this remainder category, where first you define what a democracy is, and then everything else that's not a democracy (laughs) is an autocracy. And it seems unsatisfying intellectually in a lot of ways. And I guess authoritarianism as an ideology feels similar 
to me. It's like everything that's not, you know, democratic or or within yeah I, within that tradition. Yeah, yeah. You said something to me in an earlier conversation about ideologies as heuristic shortcuts, as kind of easy ways to anchor sets of beliefs without having to you know arrive at your positions anew ex nihilo for you know each new issue that you face. So I, I think you used. Elizabeth Warren, like like, what would Elizabeth Warren think about this issue as, as an example? Uh, can you can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. So if you think about how complicated the world actually is, which is something I do a lot these days, because we just have these twin boys at our house now. They're six months old. You know, you sort of see the world through their eyes. They're trying to figure out everything on its own terms. You know, <laughs> and it's just this like overpowering set of conundrums. You know, I think it was memorably described as this blooming, buzzing confusion. Um, <laughs> That's great. And I think that we are in that same position all the time, actually. We're looking at the kinds of intellectual issues, policy positions we're forced to take a position on. Because like politics is changing all the time. There are all these you know, things that we've never thought about before, and suddenly they become politicized, and now we have to have an opinion about them. And you just think about how much work that would be if there wasn't a bunch of uh, heuristics you could use. If you couldn't look to people who have invested more time into this and then say, well, Debbie Sullickson thinks this, maybe I should think this too. <laughs> Just to take That's often things. how I, I use Debbie as like my, my basic uh, orientation. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, like, like national political figures are useful for this, right? And so I think that uh, there are a wide range of heuristics that people use. And some of them are about like, what do elites think? And some of them are about like, what do people like me think? And that gets people most of the way there without having to think nearly as hard about about the issues and gather all this information and you know pay all this cost basically. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, and yeah, the buzzing confusion is is getting to me as well. Even though you know my kids are grown, uh, that's that causes its own set of confusion. They're teenagers, so anyway, yeah, I see. <laughs> yes. believe me. Uh, there's there's quite a gap, though, I think, between how Chinese people use the word ideology and, and how it's understood here in the United States. How would you characterize that difference? I mean, when Chinese commentators speak about ideology, whether they use a word like 思想 or 意识形态, what is it that they mean? And, and are there subtle differences between these various words that they use? Yeah, so I think that for them, it's more of a a concept that's useful for elites or for people within the system. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that they are as concerned or have thought as much about whether ordinary members of the public are constrained. You know, they I think they do think about whether ordinary members of the public will go along with something or whether they approve of something, but the sort of consistency in terms of public opinion, they they have a gift of not being able to or not having to to always think about that. Yeah. But I think that for them Ideology is something that's primarily about, you know, these philosophical schools, you know, in contention with one another that then get transformed into something that, that the officials can use. And it's primarily about a coordination device, in my view, which is this idea that, you know, we can, um, we can summarize for everybody through our, um, through our Yifu Tai, you know, what is, what is it that we're trying to do and what's the, What's the sort of main melody here, right. and how does that guide you know how you then uh, do your work? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about these these words that they use? Like I said, like yishu xingtai or sixiang, and there's a whole bunch of them. Like sixiang yishu. If you if you were to go to, I, don't, I haven't done it in a while, but you go to a, a 
translate software and you type in ideology and see what what the the Chinese word for it is, there are several. And in in I haven't really puzzled out what the different shades of meaning actually are. Yeah, what is what is Sushang Gongzuo and what is Yifushintai and how is that different exactly? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I guess I would say I don't know. Like <laughs> that's good. <laughs> you don't know. Either, I, right. I might not be the right person to ask about this, um, but uh, maybe this is a question for Jude. Yeah, <laughs> I can ask him. Yeah, I don't know. Like, what is what? What would I say about this? I mean, I mean, they seem to be used sort of interchangeably. Yeah, I think that I think that it might have some kind of term of art meaning for people that that I just haven't picked up. What about for Chinese social scientists? You work with a lot of Chinese political scientists. Um, do they have a different operational definition from it from the elites that you just described? I mean, you're talking about what the, the party, right? You know, the party, of course, it has its idea of ideology, and that is, of course, you know, uh, what what do we call it now? Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, right? That is the ideology. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they would they would say there are I- other ideologies. You know, fascism is an ideology. You know, democratic mm-hmm. socialism is an ideology. But, but yeah, what about political scientists? Do they have something that's closer to you know the American political scientists' idea operationally? Yeah, I mean, I think that if they're working in the same tradition, then their definition would be the same. And if they're talking to the sort of more Marxist tradition, then then they <laughs> they mean yeah. something else. It's it's kind of unhelpful in some ways that you know that you have to explain what you're about every time. Yeah. But it, it's an important word. So. You know, based on some some notional American mainstream discourse about Chinese politics uh, and about U.S.-China relations, how would you characterize what your average, reasonably high information American thinks of when they say China's ideology? I mean, because when I try to imagine it, I feel like it's it's pushed by really contradictory messages from the media. I mean, they're all rabid capitalists, uh, but also they're reviving the cultural revolution and, you know, ready for like, this radical redistribution of wealth. Uh, they're all longing to, you know, break the chains of, of Leninist authoritarianism. And also they're all raging nationalists who, you know, hate American democracy. Uh, so, you know, you're in Bloomington in the American heartland. What's the thinking on, on this? What, what does the American imagine Chinese ideology to be all about? Yeah, so I think that there are, I think that um, because there are actually these competing sort of archetypes to draw from, you put them together and you get somewhere closer to the, you know, to what it is. Um, but I would say there's still this communist and communist other kind of uh, way of thinking about it. There's the crony capitalism, and this is what happens if you don't have as much social democracy style regulation. Right. There is the response to the sort of swaggering nationalism, and I think there's also there's also still this like mysterious yeah. <laughs> character to like the word's you know, inscrutable, um, Jason. You got to go with inscrutable. <laughs> well, you know, I suppose. So, so um, before we actually get into your research uh, in ideology among you know actual Chinese people, let, let's stay with official ideology for a second here. What would you say is the actual content of the ideology that is espoused by the Chinese party state, uh, you know, in recent years? I mean, once upon a time, you could point, I mean, even like during Deng's time to four cardinal principles that were meant to be a kind of fence around the core of Marxist-Leninist beliefs. Um, 
everything else was kind of up for grabs, up for debate. I mean, today, though, there is this thing and it's got a name. It's got a clunky name. You know, it's this Xi Jinping thought with Chinese characteristics for the new era. Uh, some some folks have just kind of dubbed it Xiism. I, I suppose we go with that. Mm-hmm. Without having to read his fine book, which I've heard has just great reviews on Amazon, uh, what what can we say about Xiism as a set of beliefs? What, what is this official ideology? Yeah, so I think that it has a couple of different directions to it. I think that one part of it is about the need for the center to take back the reins of the commanding heights of the economy and to sort of reform, but reform in a way such that they preempt or undo some of the problems that have come across through market reforms um, or the way that they've been practiced in China. I think another part of it has to do with some kind of Chinese exceptional, like this is this is our own way of doing things and, and it's not really up for discussion, like whether or not it's correct or not because it is ours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I think that another part of it is about, I don't know, I mean, this is not in the context and the content so much as the subtext, but this idea of, you know, this is how we're going to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union. And, you know, like, this is how we're going to have a new masculinity. And this is how we're going to have this, like, new toughness to, you know, how we do things. And so I think you see that in terms of all of these otherwise, you know, somewhat puzzling <laughs> um, cultural moves. So what about other features of, of kind of more orthodox Marxism, Leninism? For example, do they actually believe in kind of material determinism or dialectical materialism? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I think that there's a mix of people who really do take that very seriously. And then people who are kind of doing it lip service and just mentioning it so that they don't, I don't know, have to explain themselves too much afterwards. But I think that they have moved a little bit beyond this idea of looking back to the text to figure out what they should do about sort of contemporary things. You know, I think that I think that they have a fair bit of discretion there and it's not like a, you know, what would Marx Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that outside a really small circle of, you know, Xi Jinping's sycophants, that there are many people whose, you know, ideology actually does uh, embrace all of, all of these things, you know. Um, but there are still foundational ideas about the party and its role, and its historical mission and stuff like that. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I got to think that there are still core beliefs that, the modern party member or pro-party person would espouse about the role of the state, the the source of the state's legitimacy, things like that, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that a lot of the the precepts that Mao put forward about the relationship between the party and the people are being revived or rehabilitated yeah. or just brought back to the forefront, I think. And I guess there was this debate about, is she very Dungist or or not, and how much of what he's doing is in opposition to what Dung sort of stood for, and how much of it is sort of a reaffirmation of that. And I think that they're very eclectic with how they with how they select from the past traditions. I mean, it's just like there's such a broad corpus of things that they could select, right? That they could like it gives them a bit of flexibility, actually. You know, I've always found it's really frustrating when I've tried to engage Chinese friends of mine to try to you know get them to talk about the core kind of philosophical beliefs that, you know, weirdly kind of form almost a part of our like, American political culture, just almost at the surface. 
you can't get them to talk about, you know, what, what is the correct relationship between the state and the individual or what are the actual moral responsibilities of the state? What should and shouldn't they include? I mean, that sort of thing. It's, it's weird. I, I, I've had so much trouble just trying to tease that out of people. Why don't we dig into a couple of these papers of yours that you worked on uh, that are focused on ideology? In The Nature of Ideology in Urban China, you and your co-author, Meng Tianguang, look at the relationship. He's at Tsinghua University, by the way. Uh, you guys look at the, the relationship in China between political knowledge on the one hand and ideological constraint on the other. In other words, you're looking at whether people, you know, people's views are more constrained, more consistent, you know, more clumped together or less constrained according to how much they know about politics. And and you found something very different from what other researchers have concluded both in China and when you look between you know China and democratic countries. And it happens that I've actually talked with the author or one of the authors of one of these other studies that your findings depart from. And we'll talk about that in just a sec. But into your findings first, could you talk about uh, that data set that you looked at and what your conclusions were and how they differed? Yeah. So the data comes from this national urban survey that was done back in 2015 under Tianguang's direction. And uh, what we found was pretty paradoxical for people who are looking at the situation from, I don't know, like assumptions that are built from other contexts. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in most countries, not just in the US, but most most other countries that they've done this kind of research, the more knowledgeable someone is about politics, the more structured they are, the more constrained they are, the more that their thinking is described with a with one principle, mm-hmm. basically. You know, so in the US we would describe this as liberal conservative spectrum. And so if you look at people who don't know very much about politics, like you ask them a bunch of factual questions, you know, like how long's a senator's term and stuff like that. People who don't do well on that part of the knowledge test, you can't explain very much of their answers about political issues using liberal or conservative, this idea. But as they sort of are more knowledgeable, you can do better. And as you look at like elites, you know, people who go to the national conventions, for example, then they are very constrained by this underlying principle, you know, almost as much as the people in Congress when they're voting on, you know, various bills and amendments and so forth. And, and in China, it's just not that way. And what we found is that the people who are more informed in our survey are less constrained in the sense that one principle doesn't explain as much of what they're thinking about these sorts of questions that we ask them, like, you know, whether there should be a minimum wage or whether the current political system is the best for China in its current circumstances. And that suggests that the way that the ideological landscape is organized in China is not, you know, really in this sort of one underlying principle describing everything. I guess our reason for thinking that is that the conceit is that the people who are more informed have a better understanding of how these principles are actually organized. Yeah. Uh, let's let's come back to that, why, you know, your explanations for your findings in just a sec. But I, I want to do some a couple of things first. One is, so you and, and uh, Tianguang posit that there are just two basic ideological dimensions, a left-right economic dimension and a kind of authoritarian, liberal, political dimension. This is pretty normal. This is something you see, you know, in the United States too. Just most of the sort of political compass types of surveys you see them all over the internet, right? It's it's uh, you know it mm-hmm. kind of yields yeah. these these four quadrants. So let's put this in a Chinese context. That what 
where the types of, of questions and what types of answers to them would qualify one, say, as economically left or economically right, and then you know politically authoritarian versus politically liberal. What, what are some of the examples of the sorts of questions that they, they had in this urban survey? Yeah. So if you ask a question like, do you think that market reform produces more inequality mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. like that? Or if you ask and you say yes, you know that would put you farther to this state end, this left end. If you asked a question like, should the government control the housing market, then that would put you, and, and you disagreed with that, that would put you farther to this right sort of more market. And on the political dimension, something like, you know, whether a multi-party system is suitable for China, if you say yes, that would push you in that more democratic direction. And if you said no, that would push you in this more authoritarian direction. Okay. So there's another study that, that we, we can talk about that was for, that Jen Pan and, and uh, uh, Yixing Xu looked at in their paper, a pretty well-known paper. Uh, and I've actually talked to Yixing about this as well. Uh, that includes another axis, which is nationalist versus what, what do they call? It? I mean, I, I would say cosmopolitan, but let's say anti-nationalist or, or pro-nationalist. Uh, mm-hmm. What what did you guys? How did you decide not to include that? Uh, did you feel like it all sort of ends up lining up too neatly already with uh, authoritarian versus democratic? Oh, so I mean, the the actual names of those axes are in part a product of what you asked on the survey. And and so our questions did tap into some of the nationalist understandings of things, but I, I would guess more obliquely. Like, you know, you have questions that seem to be about, you know, whether the political system is the best suited for China's circumstances. That could be a political system question or like a the China circumstances part makes it more of a national hmm. question. And, and so I don't know that that difference in emphasis is so significant because that's driven by like what you're able to include. Um, so because the data sources are different, the some of the questions are also. So let's just just like take your low information and, and high information uh, respondents and and if we were to do this in the United States, right? You 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 end up with these four quadrants where you'd find in one corner you know, kind of authoritarian statists. Uh, those are actually pretty rare in the United States, right? People who would be sort of economically on the left but also um, you know all all in favor of state involvement in you know morality and things like that and then you have your left liberals who are basically you know socially liberal and favor things like progressive taxation also um, more mm-hmm. you know robust social safety net more aggressive antitrust blah blah and then you have your basic conservatives right who are you know socially conservative but against quote unquote big government, um, and finally, you have your, your libertarians who are both, you know, sort of uh, both economically and politically uh, in, in favor of the individual and for freedom. Right? So in China, where are they cl- clustered uh, in, in for, let's take low information and then high information? Which, which quadrant do they correspond to, as it were? So it's a great question. And as it turns out, there is not that much organization in terms of this. You know, I mean, you can you can draw the quadrants and you can find people who are, say, authoritarian but pro-market, mm-hmm, for example. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of an axis of like there's more people in this pro-state uh, control of the economy, more authoritarian. And they're a little bit more than you'd expect in the pro-market, um, pro-democracy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sector. But 
if it were like a really like tightly bound together, you know, actually one sort of principle, then you would see many more people in those two quadrants than in the off diagonal. Right. And actually, you you see a lot of people in the off diagonals too. And I think what what we conclude from this is that there's just not such a strong sense of a coherent belief system for most people. And so they're not in this world where there's polarization. Right. Sounds like a blessing for me from in, you know America <laughs> right now. Right? But, yeah. Uh, and, and even less, as you say, as your findings say, when you're talking about high information uh, respondents, right? Which is just, yeah, it's, it's a very, very interesting finding. So what, what's interesting, though, is that, like I said, you're, this paper builds on this Jennifer Pan and I Ching Xu thing. Uh, I've talked to I Ching, as I said. It was last summer, by the way, for listeners who might recall or want to go back and listen to it. But Jen and I Ching seem to have found something very, very different from you. They basically saw quite a bit of constraint overall, so that even though they were you know, looking at these three axes, they had that nationalism access to, respondents tended to clump into pretty simple left and right. Um, people who favored state involvement in the economy, and also fa- they also favored you know authoritarianism and nationalism, by the way. And people who wanted less state involvement in economic matters were also more liberal politically and more cosmopolitan. So, like as we would expect, sort of in in, in America. So here's what puzzles me, though, is that this was based on that political compass survey, right? Um, that Zobia. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is online and it's opt-in and presumably would attract what you in your study would call high information individuals, right? But they Mm -hmm. show remarkably high levels of constraint and yours shows lower levels of constraint for that same kind of analogous group. What do you think explains this difference? I mean, how are these participants so unlike your high information urban participants? That's a great question. And it's a bit of a puzzle I think that one possibility is that high information in in the urban sample was just relative, you know, uh-huh. is like the top, the, the, the more informed people of the people that they talk to face to face. But even like someone in the top third or the top 10% of that overall knowledge spectrum, that's still a different kind of person from the person who will choose to take a ideology study online. And then, you know, they ha- must have some kind of hobby, yeah, you know, yeah. or curiosity. But yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and that was going to be my explanation. Too. I mean, the curve must bend again later on, right? I mean, as you get even into higher levels of of, of political knowledge, it, you go back to high constraint. That would make a lot of sense, I think, for a lot of our priors. And you know, I think that I don't know. I think that we would need to study elites, um, or maybe like have a narrower definition of who we consider to be really sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. To study them. But, you know, I guess we've, so we've looked at this before where we looked at like party members within the sample, for example, mm-hmm. something like uh, eight or 10% of the sample or party members. And we've also looked at like, you know, there was a separate question about participation, which was like, would you ever consider participating in a protest? And what's interesting is that even those two groups of people are not that different in terms of their ideology. Huh. You know, they're like, they're pretty similar on the state and market dimension and then you know the the potential protester people those people are are like a little bit more democratic and the party members are a little bit more authoritarian but by comparative standards it's it's a pretty close uh relationship actually and so you know maybe this is because like they're not really 
you know, enforcing constraint upon each other. You know, it's not like the prote- potential protesters are talking to each other about like, okay, this is what we think about this and this is what we think about yeah, yeah. But, you know, the party is kind of doing that. And so I think it's interesting that you have that sort of diffuse character to things despite all of that. This is just, yeah, it's, it's, it's utterly fascinating. And again, it's like sort of, uh, I'm kind of envious of the way that they can be so sort of syncretic in their beliefs. They can just kind of combine all these things that to me just seem contradictory. I'm, I've seen the same thing in musical ideology. It's, it's kind of great. How is that? How is the musical part playing? Yeah, no, that's it's, it's funny because like I, I tell a story. I, I told it on Radio Lab not too long ago. Um, how you know? So there's supposed to be these beliefs about certain genres of music. If you're an aficionado of punk rock, right, you're supposed to kind of be anti-technique. You're not supposed to like encourage virtuosity. In fact, it's it's kind of mm-hmm. you know the worse you are at your instrument, sort of the more authentically punk you are. But in China, uh-huh. you find people playing in the punk genre, uh, you know, who, who do superficially, I mean, the, the, it's, it's kind of that brash and snotty major key, you know, kind of open chords. But in the middle of a song, they'll throw in like these blazing guitar solos that, that are just like these really kind of conspicuous displays of, of virtuosity. And that's kind of not supposed to be there, right? Uh, I <laughs> mean, great. and then, you know, the same with like in, in other genres where virtuosity is supposed to be, but it's not just virtuosity. It's things like, you know, complexity and composition or, or, um, you know, there's, there's sort of philosophical underpinnings of these subgenres or genres in the West that don't translate into China. And the, the kind of the, the weird hybrids you get when you kind of uproot a plant and planted in Chinese soil, it grows weird fruit. And then sometimes that fruit is amazing. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it reminds me of something that um, I remember Barry Naughton was telling me before the 18th Party Congress. We were trying to puzzle out, you know, what's, what's Xi Jinping going to do, you know? And I remember he told me these guys coming through the system, like they get to the top and they're capable of just about anything. And I, I didn't really understand how that would work at the time. But now you see, like, if society is this malleable in some sense, where there aren't sort of determined pockets of public opinion that you know are really already organized and ready to like pounce on you for doing something that's contrary to to their organization, then you really do have a lot more freedom to operate, yeah. um, and and sort of choose what kind of policy you want to implement. I mean, this is, maybe this is where that famous Chinese pragmatism comes in, right? That it's it's not just you. You don't feel like you you owe an allegiance to this, you know philosophical tradition that you ostensibly belong to and that instead you can just sort of say look we'll do what needs to be done to 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 kind of address the conditions that we find yeah you can't have so much technocratic government if like the if the electorate's demanding something different yeah. right so so let's talk about what these results mean i mean i said we'd come back to the, your explanations for it so let's throw out this group uh, of of sort of the self-reporting people on on the political compass survey, and look at your urban survey here that you and Tianguang did. You you posit that propaganda and censorship have something to do with why political knowledge seems to be correlated with less constraint on issue positions. How do you explain that? How does how does the the management of media play into this? So a couple of thoughts. First, you know, I, I think that as difficult as it may be to work with the sort of opt-in political compass style data, I think that uh, Jen and Yiching really did an amazing job of 
rebalancing that and then bringing in, they also brought in a face-to-face survey to corroborate a lot of what they found. So, you know, I think that we largely agree about sort of the character of how things look, but I would also say that, so, okay, so you have a propaganda censorship system and, you know, how does it operate? Well, we know from work by people like Gary King and Jen and um, Molly Molly Roberts that this this is about protest, but there's also pre-publication filters on different keywords and so forth. And I think, you know, what this is doing is it's saying something like, here are these restricted areas, but then we're not going to have a lot to say necessarily about the minimum wage. You know, we're not going to have a lot to say about some of the nuts and bolts policy issues. And because of that, I think that creates the sort of space for a lack of constraint. I think that if the party did explain all of its policy positions in, in the sort of public-facing rhetoric uh, much more than, than maybe you would get a different pattern among people who are highly informed. Like maybe they would adopt this as a package right. or resist it. Right. Um, but if you're sort of, you know, if your uh, high-level public-facing stuff is just more abstract and more basic than this, then I think that that produces this kind of uncertainty and, and diffuseness. Yeah. Now, that makes a ton of sense to me. And what do you think that this means in terms of, of Chinese politics? In particular, your paper suggests that this low level of constraint means that the party leadership can actually divide and conquer. Spell that out. How would that work? Or indeed, how, how has that worked in, in practice? Yeah. So I think that if you don't allow for very much organized interest, then this idea of like an issue public that cares deeply about an issue and is going to like hold your feet to the fire if you break your pledge that you signed to them or something like that. Like if that's not really there, and even when you do collect information from the public and it's, you know, you're consultative and so forth, it's sort of dealing with people individually as opposed to in these organized groups. I think that means that you can sort of do something and then see if it works before there's a strong pushback against it. And that allows you the ability to try things that you just wouldn't think about trying in other contexts. And so I think that helps explain why from our point of view, the CCP is capable of very, you know, sudden policy changes. Right. I think it's because there, it's not that there aren't interest groups within the system or outside of the system. It's not that they don't have influence, but they have a little bit more freedom here. And I would also say that this extends not just to the policy that they can execute, but it also extends to the way that people talk about politics. And so there's this other paper that I've been working on that looks at ideological labels. So if you ask people if they're to a pie or you'll pie, mm-hmm. you know, you give them like a one to six scale. And this was done originally all the way back in 1993 by Fertian. It's really interesting because it turns out that people don't really know what party goes where. Like they were asked about the communists and also about the Kuomintang. Uh-huh. And and it turns out that like if someone says that they're on the right, then they think the Communist Party is also on the right, and they think that the Kuomintang is on the left. But if they say that they're on the left, they think the Communist Party is on the left, and they think the Kuomintang is on the right. Categorical confusion, as you say. Yes, basically, like, you know, the people who say they're on the far right meant to say they were on the far left, but were just, you know, had it flipped in their head. Um, and I, I just find that that's, you know, you see this actually in a lot of places, a lot of there are a fair number of people who are not that well informed about who are not that informed about politics who will make that mistake if you if you do a similar study in other contexts. But 
you know, China, this is most of the people, yeah. <laughs> most of the people who say they're on the right. And then, you know, of course, you have the plurality who just say they don't know or they put themselves in the middle. You say, you say that, that that original study had been done back in, what, you said 1993? The data was collected in 1993, but the paper is, uh, is, is being done now. So, oh, wow. That's, um, that's really interesting. It, there's a lot of these uh, sort of data sets that have been collected over the years where they were done for one purpose, um, but they had some other things added on that, that you'd maybe go back and reinterpret. Okay, so the upshot of your findings with this paper, categorical confusion, ideological labels in China, um, the upshot, it's pretty straightforward, you know, that based on results from two national surveys, you found that people are willing to locate themselves left or right, like you said, but they don't really, you know, the the words have a ton of meaning that it's very muddled. I mean, that that might strike a lot of people as odd because these labels do get used in Chinese political discourse. They have been for a long time. I mean, you said, you know, obviously, you know, think about this anti-rightist campaign, right? Left deviationism, mm-hmm. right deviationism. And even like mm-hmm. in more recent discourses, you have this word, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so the, these this left and right thing, it originates, uh, as I think many people know, in 18th century France, just based on where people sat in the States General in 1789. And we see these ideas in, in use in China just like a century later, right? In the early 1900s, you already see people, you know, using these words uh, to to understand the, the, the all these different political theories that are pouring into China and competing for the affections of Chinese intellectuals. I'm wondering, though, was there a reborrowing of the two words since reform and opening began that might have contributed to the confusion. Yeah, so my sense is that you know, it was more common in the Mao era as a pejorative, you know, of like uh being a rightist and so forth or, and then later on like being an ultra leftist was also, you know, suspect, right? Right. And it's something that Deng used to used to talk in these terms to sort of explain what reform and opening was and like who was opposing him and so forth. And I think that They've sort of de-emphasized this language, at least officially, after that. Now, like commentators just uh, reach for this because it's such a useful abstraction for us, right? But I think that when we then use these terms, we should remember that they don't necessarily have meaning for ordinary people. And that means that we can sort of go uh, off into the wrong direction if we, if, we, if we think that, you know, they're moving left or they're moving right and like people understand what we're talking about. If you look at the positions on issues, people who say that they're on the left or people who say that they're on the right, they don't think anything different about specific issues from people who say that they're in the middle or people who say, you know, they're on another side. And so that sort of raises this question of what what are they actually talking about? Maybe we can get some clarity out of an intellectual. We can pin them down, right. um, a specific person. But, you know, in aggregate, that that information is just not really there. It's so funny then that it's always in the American mind that it's the Chinese who are ideological. <laughs> we are we are actually a lot more. I mean, I, I mentioned at the beginning uh, that in the U.S. it's become just really common to speak about U.S.-China relations in terms of you know a contest of ideology. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think you know certainly in China, many have come to see it that way and and are framing a lot of these differences between the U.S. and China very much in that light. I, I was struck yesterday. I was reading, you know, this guy Zhishun Wang at, at Xinhua. He publishes this great substat called Pekingology. And yesterday he translated an essay by that guy, Ren Yi, uh, Chairman Rabbit, uh, mm-hmm. Tu Zhu Xi. Um, he 
wrote this this piece looking at at COVID responses, contrasting you know uh, this disparity in 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 responses to the COVID nineteen pandemic between the U.S. and China, and he basically chalks it up to ideological differences. I mean, he says that American political ideology basically limits the power of the government and limits the expectations that are are, are placed on it, right? The central government, especially federal government, uh, while Chinese political ideology saddles the central government with both a moral and political responsibility to ensure, you know, public health and, and, and safety. So, and, you know, it would hold the central government responsible were it to allow the kinds of death rates that we've seen in the United States. He also points out that there's only, he says, like 3.6 ICU beds per 100,000 people in China, whereas there's 10 times that many, like 34.7 ICU beds per 100,000 in the United States. So maybe that has something to do with it too. Uh, So so in, in your estimation, what are the right ways to take on board the importance of ideological differences between China and the United States without exaggerating them or, or assigning them like too much explanatory weight. I mean, clearly there's something there, right? Yeah, the COVID example reminds me. So my, um, I, was, I was talking to my dad, who's, uh, who's an immunologist. And oh, wow. He was, he was talk, t- telling me about this paper that was looking at like historical patterns of disease. And apparently the Black Death they can do this fancy like disease detective work now. And it started in China, but the Chinese government at the time was able to like suppress it and it ended up being um, a bigger deal in Europe. Um, and so I wonder, you know, is that an ideo- ideological consistency? You know, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, so like, so how do you make this, how do you avoid making this analytical error? I was thinking about this and uh, in part, you know, this, theme that you guys have of thinking about thinking about China. You know, it seems like one kind of error you can make is like they're just like us. You know, they think about things the same way. And then when they don't do something exactly the same way, you're kind of surprised. Right. But I think another way you can make an error is you can think, well, they're nothing like us. And, you know, the intuitions that we can build off of studying ourselves, you know, don't really apply to um to what people in China think or what people in China want to do. Um, and I think that also pushes you in terms of like, you know, uh, being surprised about a lot of things. Right. As far as how to use ideology to think about this international competition, I mean, I don't, I don't see anything untoward about it. You know, it's it's used to describe this kind of contest between systems. I guess like, it seems to not be like an equal conflict in my view, where you know China's still fighting this mostly defensive battle where they're just trying to say like, wait a second, like. You know, your way of thinking is is too universalist to apply here. You know, they're not making a counter universalist argument the way that the Cold War was this sort of like ex- exporting socialism um, versus exporting capitalism democracy. Right, right. And so I don't know. I I think that, you know, for the Chinese side, this ideological competition has to do with like efforts to stoke peaceful evolution and so forth. And for the American side, I think that I mean, I think that people sometimes see other societies, sort of other dictatorships, try to um, adopt some of the techniques that the CCP has taken. But, but that's more, in my view, that's more about like tools and strategies, and less about you know the realm of the of the should or what you want to be when you grow up. Right. Um, and it's so, less normative, right? Yeah. And, and, and there's no effort to export it necessarily. It's more passive, right? 
a borrowing rather right. than yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I think there's there's this trade-off between like how universal and how sort of far-reaching your your way of thinking is and then like how you know how much you maximize support in one context. And I think that the CCP is all about the the second end of that. Yeah, yeah. That sounds right to me. So this morning, as I was taking the kids to school, I was listening to the Daily, you know, the New York Times podcast, and Michael mm-hmm. Barbara was talking to David Leonhardt about a poll on COVID attitudes and behavior among Americans. Uh, it was like, you know, and it was larger than 4,000. It was a pretty big poll. Uh, so to, I think, probably nobody's surprise, there were huge partisan divisions on on things like vaccine status, right? I had I I asked I said to my kid, you know, I said, hey, guess what, what? What would you guess? What what percentage of adult Democrats are vaccinated? And you know, he was right. He said uh, over ninety. Yeah, over ninety. It was correct. And uh, he, he but he also guessed correctly that he said he thought about maybe forty to fifty percent of Republicans weren't, and that's right too. Is forty percent aren't vaccinated, and. I mean, it, it's it's very strange because you know Democrats, of course, of all ages, report being very very worried about getting COVID, and and you know Republicans report being very unworried. So they're they're both on kind of the the wrong side of of the science in a lot of ways. Um, you know, so this got me thinking that it's like ideology is so deep at this point that it actually affects behavior like significantly. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think if there's anything analogous in China. Like, does commitment by any large group of Chinese people to some ideological position, has it ever had its grip so much on people in, in recent decades that it's affected their actual behavior in potentially, you know, life and death issues like partisan identity in America has? It's, it's I can't even think of anything. I mean, sure, there's nationalism. They'll go out in the streets and protest burn Japanese cars in 2012, but it wasn't yeah, even that I, widespread. Well, you know, I mean, we talk about the Chinese COVID response and um, it's it's been interesting to see like sort of the Western reaction to the Chinese response and how that's changed over time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, arguably, like you get to this point now and it's like, can they sustain zero COVID or are they doing this indefinitely, you know? And I think that there there could be an element of like, identity or the way that they think about the system or something like that, that then makes some people, you know, so willing to uh, go along with this at this point. Yeah. Um, I, was I don't know that, that that's purely a cost benefit thing anymore. No, I don't think it is. I think that, that, that there's part of sort of national pride that's wrapped up in, in the success of this policy now. And that's got mm-hmm. to be driving some of the behavior. That's uh, I was thinking might be uh, part of the response. I wonder how much nationalism drives like which vaccine you take, you know, like you look at like the Russians and why are they so unwilling to get vaccinated? I think there's a lot of like trust issues and stuff like that. You know, I guess the thing I don't know is I don't know how much access China would have to the, to like the American or the British vaccines or something. And if they, if that's, if that sort of national identity is determining their COVID strategy. Yeah, I mean, but, people who are like to, to chastise China for not having taken that opportunity to, you know, to to uh, work with with uh, Pfizer on, and BioNTech on on the mRNA. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's their fault or that might be like pressure from from Western governments or something. Yeah, like that. who really knows? 
Anyway, you know, um, it, what a f- fantastically interesting conversation. I, I highly recommend that people check out these two papers because they're really they're easy to un- understand and really eye opening. Uh, so check them out. Go to to to, to Jason's uh, website and you can find all his research there, as well as a, a treasure trove of, of other research. Um, Jason, man, thank you so much for taking the time to join. Uh, let's let's move on to recommendations. Before we do that, let me quickly remind people that if you like the work that we're doing here with the Seneca Podcast, the best thing you can do to help us out is to subscribe to SupChina Access. It's the beginning of the year. You know, this is a really important year. This is this you're going to want to follow uh, Chinese politics really carefully, and the best way to do that is by subscribing to to this f- f- fantastic newsletter, SupChina Access. Um, and yeah. By the way, check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. There are lots of them right now. And I'm, I'm very pleased to tell you that that one of my favorites, Strangers in China, is coming back in just a couple of months. And so stay tuned for that as well. All right, let's move on to to recommendations. Jason, what do you have for us, man? So um, a couple, this is a tough thing for me to narrow it down to. So I, I'm afraid that <laughs> I have a couple. But no, That's great. Uh, one is... Uh, I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy this um this genre of the campus novel. And uh it's just there's this sort of tradition of like satirical novels about, you know, people in academia. I guess the most recent manifestation is like the chair or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Which was but controversial, I, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I mean I so my favorite in this genre would be um uh the classic I think is uh, Lucky Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh, by Kingsley Amos, and then there's um, more recently Straight Man, which I thought was just you know oh, really funny. Who, who and, wrote like, that? Funny. It's like Richard Russo. I oh think. yeah, yeah, that guy. He, he wrote Empire Falls. Is that that guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's just you know it's great. I think that people sort of enjoy seeing stuff written about people like themselves, and so maybe that's part of it. But I think it's I think it's also just funny in a way that you know I don't know if I would have found it funny when I was younger, but. Um, there's something about this sort of like uh, making peace with uh, <laughs> with who you are, which is which is just um, kind of funny. I'm buying it and right then, now. I mean, even as you speak, <laughs> I'm just buying it. Um, and then the other thing I would recommend, I guess, um, is uh, this board game called Twilight Struggle. I don't know if you've ever played it before. No, no, I haven't. Um, but uh, it's this two person game. It's like based on the Cold War. Um, it's very, it captures the sort of paranoia of the cold war very well, because, you know, there are all these different events that happened in reality, like, um, the Cuban missile crisis or, yeah, or the Arab Israeli war or something Uh like that, you know, and, um, and, you know, the first time you're playing the game, you don't really know what's going to happen and everything's a surprise and you're trying to like control different parts of the world. And you're not really sure why you're doing something. You're just sort of responding to what. Uh, the other person is doing, which I think captures the sort of Cold War <laughs> paranoia pretty well. <laughs> but then if you play like a little bit more and you sort of know all the things that could happen, there's still this balance that comes about of like trying to play around what other people are going to do. And I think what's really interesting is there was this like Chinese, uh, separate Chinese community that had their own uh, way of playing the game um, that sort of developed in parallel to the sort of, you know, way that it was played in the US and other places. And they actually discovered like, a set of better strategies that became standard, you know, once, once they started playing each other. And, Interesting. You know. <laughs> Twilight struggle I, I, and the Chinese take on Twilight struggle. I'll have to look this up. That sounds really interesting. Uh, I'll, 
I haven't played a board game forever. I, I'm like one of the few people on earth who hasn't played Settlers of Catan yet. Everyone keeps telling me, oh, we're having a Settlers mm. of Catan party. I'm like, uh, I'm not going to go to your super spreader event. But, uh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I think that uh, they're not necessarily something that everyone has to enjoy. But if if you do think, enjoy thinking about this sort of, you know. Uh, I'll stick with Wordle. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, man. Thanks. Uh, that those are those are great. Um, so the Straight Man and Lucky Jim, two campus novels, and Twilight Struggle. I'll check those out. Mm-hmm. So my recommendation is I am actually finally reading Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain, which of course is set in Davos. Uh, and I, I was thinking about Davos just because, well, I was supposed to be there in January. Of course, it didn't happen. I, I for God, twenty years or something, getting on twenty years. I've had this great gig with the World Economic Forum where I, I go there as a summary writer. I just basically go, they assign you to sessions, you take notes, and then you, you have to be able to write quickly. That's the thing is I type fast. So um, you're, you're kind of a glorified stenographer, but not really. I mean, you, you end up writing up these sort of summaries, and then you write a lot of press releases and stuff like that too. So it, it kind of matches my skill set because they could you know assign me to China stuff or tech stuff or um, or you know sort of geopolitics stuff, and I could, I could deliver but I was supposed to go. I was. They they'd sorely reduced the number of writers they invited to to Davos this this month. Uh, couldn't go, and of course it's it's now being pushed back until the end of May. And I guess I'm going to get to go. So I, I've said, you know what? I, I've been to Davos so many damn times, and I've never read this book that everyone is always talking about. <laughs> so it's it's actually really good. I mean, it was written. It started in in pre-war period. Thomas Mann started writing, and then he finished it after the war. I think 1924, uh, but it's 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 good. I mean, it's just subtle sort of psychological explorations of, of people, and it's 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 a kind of wacky novel. It's very funny. It's very funny. That's a, I, I kind of hadn't anticipated just how 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 comedic it is. So um, yeah, check it out. I'm I'm you know it's a very long novel. I'm I'm only maybe a third of the way through right now, but I'm very much enjoying it. Isn't it great when you eat your vegetables and it turns out the vegetables taste good? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm a big <laughs> vegetable. Yeah. Maybe next time I'll, I'll recommend my favorite, like, sog paneer or, or pollock paneer recipe. Uh, yeah. it's, it's my favorite way to eat spinach. Right here. Okay. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, what a pleasure it was to talk to you. Thank you, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.